AI is here, whether we like it or not. Whether it be in the art world or communication, AI can be found just about everywhere. It's even arrived in the podcasting world. My guest today is Sam Plank, who is the founder and CEO of Dub, an AI marketing tool for podcasters. Together, we talk about the implications of recent AI models such as DALI, Stable Diffusion, and Midjourney. We talk about the importance of AI alignment, of reducing biases in AI models, as well as the implications of AI in the legal profession. Of course, there are concerns about the use of AI in our everyday life. Should we rely on it? Should we trust it? Is AI something more than just a tool? And what are our lives going to look like alongside AI? If you have even a passing interest in AI, you do not want to miss this episode. Before we get talking about AI, which is obviously what you're doing right now, I think it's only fair we get a little bit of context as to how you ended up sort of here. So think back to when you first started your BA in Applied Maths. Is that something you always wanted to do? Um, No, actually. Um, I I kind of fell into Applied Math by accident. Um, I, I came to college really not knowing what I wanted to do. Part of me thought I, I wanted to study history. I've always really loved history. Part of me thought I wanted to study biology. And I was taking a prerequisite for a biology class in math. And I found it to just be like <clears throat> super interesting and taught with a level of curiosity that I'd never seen before in, in learning math. And it made me want to pursue it more. What, was, what were the specifics that you found really, really interesting that really made you say, yeah, I'm going to make applied maths my degree? So I think I was taking some some calculus class, like I was saying, for, um, for uh, this prerequisite in biology. And, and I enjoyed that. And then the other classes you took were also things like introduction to computer science and, and statistics and things like that. And um, I just started seeing that uh, I have these other interests as well, like, um, you know, how can you uh, think about political science or government or or history um, and being able to apply the lens of um, math and computer science to those fields, like opened up whole new possibilities of of what you could study within them. Um, So a specific example is um, what I what I did my undergrad thesis on, which is uh, this kind of looking at um, how what people tweet about on Twitter um, affects their intent to do some form of uh, offline protest. Um, and I was kind of able to do that and, and do this study where I scraped a bunch of Twitter data and then um, looked at some correlations and other things between uh, that data and um, another data set I had because I had built up these skills in stats and math and things like that. So I I think the thing that was really exciting to me about it was kind of the toolkit that it gave me to to study um all these different all these different other subjects um in a quantitative way. Awesome. I kinda of wanna know more about that thesis now. Like what were your kind of findings in that? So 
full disclosure, like it was an undergrad thesis. So, and, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, you know, I probably should have like spent some more time on this or been more rigorous about that. But the basic premise was um, I, so uh, people can, one of the big ways that people kind of protest to their elected representatives, at least in the US, I imagine so in uh, the UK too, is um, they call up their representative on their their government phone number and say like, I'm so mad about this bill or, or this law or whatever. Um, and so I basically started scraping all this data from Twitter that had the phone numbers in it of all the congressmen and senators and stuff in the United States. Um, and then I did that for a few months so I could look at like, okay, what are all the tweets that are people tweeting where they include one of these phone numbers? And usually if they were doing that, they were saying like, uh, call up your senator and say you're mad about the bill about abortion or something. Um, and uh, and then I also started pulling in a bunch of data from Google, which um, showed search interest in things like uh, how to call your senator, stuff like that. And basically tried to understand like when people start tweeting in um, tweeting about specific issues or tweeting in kind of higher frequencies, does that actually translate into them going and seeking out uh, how they could, you know, turn that kind of social media protest stuff into offline protests where they're actually calling their um, senators? And so I had some kind of initial findings. I don't think it was anything crazy conclusive, but the results were like, yeah, the more the more something was on Twitter, like the more it seemed like it might translate into offline action. Oh, that, that's really interesting. And some of the most interesting findings, I think, in any kind of science, whether it's the social sciences or whether it's uh, whether it's what's known as the hard sciences, we're thinking physics, biology, they have all started out as someone's undergrad thesis idea or someone's idea they had in second or third year of undergrad and then they yeah. developed into something else. Would you be going back to that or is what you're currently doing more kind of that's taken over now? Yeah, I don't think I'll be going uh, back to that, but... Um you know, some part of me thinks in like a different life, it would be fun to go more down the academic road and like, yeah. you know, go seriously study something in, in grad school, but not, it's not what I'm working on right now. No. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. So I ended up getting my own degree in psychology, but Harvard seems a million miles away from Northampton. And I'm really curious, what, what is Harvard like? Can you give me, can you give me kind of like an insight into studying there as a student? Yeah. Um, well, first I'll say like everything about the architectural style and like how they set up the classes at Harvard was just copied from kind of the the big universities in England, you know, 400 years ago. So it's possible it's not as different as you think. Um, the I would say the things that generally surprised me about Harvard um, were... I think the the two biggest things for me about Harvard were one, like everyone you meet there, um, regardless of, you know, whether you get along as friends or not, um, is just like has some kind of super interesting side hobby or fascination and, you know, is really committed to it. And like, if you talk to them for long enough, you'll, you'll find out what it is. So like everyone you bump into is just has something like kind of wonderful to share. Um, and then the other thing that really surprised me was like, you you go to class or you know you go listen to a lecture or something and um the the people that are talking to you are like really leading you know they're 
leading in their field or they're famous in some capacity, but um, basically as a rule, they were all uh, very approachable. Like you could go up to them after class and talk to them. They'd make office hours. They were, I, I hardly ever encountered anyone who was like openly arrogant as far as professors go. Um, and that was really like a nice surprise, just that these people who are uh, kind of, you know, like demigods are like, just, you know, pr- can be pretty friendly and like warm. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I'm I'm finding more similarities than differences just from that description, because at Northampton as well, some of the most interesting people I've met in my life have been at Northampton, kind of why I called this po- podcast Tom Meets Interesting People. Uh, everyone you bumped into did have some kind of side thing that they were doing as well. I think we had definitely a lot more mature students, which made it really, really interesting as well. So it's kind of interesting to, for me to kind of see how even though our universities are a million miles away, they're still kind of similar. Now, obviously, the whole point of this um, meeting today not is not to reminisce about our universities, but to actually talk about AI. So. I'm kind of curious. Let's start with, I think, but perhaps maybe one of those top level questions that's going to have more nuance than I realize. How does an AI work? It's it's basically like a math function. Um, and it's a math function that has, uh, if you wrote it on paper, it's a, it's a huge math function. Um, but it it's a function that takes in some input. Like, for instance, it might be, um, you know, uh, a number or it might be um a piece a string of text like you know uh the tom beats interesting people podcast or it might be an image like you know it's an image of us talking and uh it runs that through this big math function that has a bunch of weights in it that um kind of alter the input in different ways and then it outputs the the output in whatever desired form you have so like Maybe if it's uh, a number that goes in, the AI say it's a number that goes in. That's like this is the this is the score of a. Uh, these are a bunch of scores that someone has with their credit cards and like their buying history, and then the output is going to be like their credit score. And then if it's text, maybe the the input text is the Tom's podcast, and then the outputs the output is um, kind of a longer paragraph that. Uh, says something about what your podcast might be about, or maybe the image that goes in is a picture of us. And then the output is, um, you know, a description of what, of what's going on here, like two people talking on a podcast. Um, and generally the way that you make this function that can take the input and generate the output, um, you have to collect a large amount of training data, which is like, um, in most cases, uh, a lot of examples of the input you want and um, the outputs that you want to get. And uh, you pass it through a very, like a number of different training systems that will start to learn like, okay, if we have this starting point, the training input, and we want this output, um, how do we start tuning the weights that are in the middle of this function such that they, you know, turn the input into the output that we want. And if you, use enough data, like we're talking about, you know, trillions of things in some cases, um, you can start to develop very complex functions, AI models in the middle that have uh, 
billions of weights within them. And those can start to do like super complex things. Like some of the stuff we're seeing now with um, chat GPT or uh, kind of crazy models like that. So kind of in short, it is AI is just a giant maths function that's been trained on different inputs. Um, it's been given different weights to produce the desired response. Yeah, I mean, in short, it's just AI systems are just, yeah, like you said, it's it's a big math function. Like you can look at AI models uh, with your human eyes. It won't mean much, but basically it's just, you know, thousands and thousands or millions or billions of these weights that correspond to um, basically how an input should be uh, modulated into an output. Um, and there's different architectures, like some AI models work, <clears throat> you know, in some way, some in another, but broadly they all fit into that same kind of definition of like, mm -hmm. it's a function. Yeah. 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 I'm going to come back also to, to the source and the reference material in a minute, but before I do that, I think with 2022, it definitely, to me, just as a consumer, um, just as a casual consumer, it seemed to be the year that AI really entered the public consciousness. Yeah. So what made this year so different? What were like the big advances that happened that made 2022 almost a year of the AI? I think a lot of people are thinking about this. My general interpretation of why things really blew up so much this year. I think there's, um, I think there's two broad things. So one, um, there were a bunch of advancements in, uh, what are called text image models. So these are models where, and by model, I mean like an, an AI model, um, where you input some string of text, like dog walking in the park with a, wearing a tutu or something. And then, uh, the model will return for you an image that um, reflects like what you said. And you can, you know, say all sorts of crazy things in the input. You can say things that have never been, you know, that aren't, don't happen in real life or have not been painted before or like brand new novel things. And uh, the AI models are able to actually like produce an output that's coherent and, you know, does this. Um, and so a bunch of these models came out like over the summer um, or maybe before that, I forget, but, uh, the latest version of Dolly, um, this model stable diffusion, uh, there's a bunch of updates to <clears throat> mid journey. These all, these models all kind of work and do the same thing. Um, but, uh, the outputs are so eye catching and, and they were broadly open for people to play around with them. That I think that, uh, helped a lot of people kind of get into AI. And then the other big thing that's been happening in the past month is the launch of ChatGPT, which is, um, a text model where you can write some input and then it will write a bunch of output back to you. Um, and this came out from OpenAI. It's uh, it's a version of a model that they already had and they launched two years ago, which had, has been kind of famous, but this really exploded. Uh, this really exploded that type of AI model into the public consciousness because everyone and their grandma can go on and play with ChatGPT and just kind of be wowed by the, the output. Yeah, now that's kind of really interesting to just sort of because I definitely sort of agree with what you said when you talked about the AI art generators because we just saw them over the summer go on Twitter, you can go on DeviantArt, you can go on whatever website that you consume art uh, and you consume media and 
everybody was making them. So, yeah, like you said, bringing that barrier to entry down really low is almost, they almost made a consumer product. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think like, I don't know the numbers for the um, text art models, but I think for the um, chat GPT, this, the chatbot thing, they have like over a million people using it, which, you know, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about the, what we use to train our yeah. AI systems. And I want to talk a bit about the, cause this is something that I care about coming from the social sciences. I care a lot about bias. Yeah. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, it, this is what occurs when the data we use to train our AI is not representative of the real world. Uh, to give you an example, um, a primary example of this was in 2016. Microsoft released a chatbot called Tay on Twitter. And then within 24 hours, it had been corrupted by trolls and was tweeting offensive images and yeah. offensive um, text. So that was the how... Nazi one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do we prevent that? How do we reduce that from ha- uh, produ- uh, reduce that from happening? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, there's a big field of people that work on this kind of stuff. Broad- mostly, they call themselves people that work on AI alignment. And one broad thing that doesn't necessarily fix the problem, but helps us know like when there is a problem, is just um, having uh, benchmark data sets that people can use, where they say like. For instance, like I'm making this up. I don't know if this exists, but like um, here's a bunch of uh, job resumes and the resumes have um, different names of that represent, you know, different ethnic groups, different genders, stuff like that. Um, And let's make sure when we pass these through our AI model that um, we're not, you know, the model is not discriminating against, um, you know, people. from less advantaged groups or, or certain, uh, you know, yeah, certain groups that might also be disadvantaged in society. Um, so that's one bucket of things. Like you can make kind of benchmark data sets that at least first let you know, like, okay, is there a problem with the AI model we have? Is it going to be doing things that are, are biased? Um, the other thing that you can do um, is what they'll do is that they train these models on like huge, huge amounts of data, like trillions of things, like they'll scrape the internet. And so it's it's impossible to sift through all of those things and say, okay, we want to clean out everything that might be biased. But then they'll train the model, and then after it's trained, um, they will uh, try to do extra training, essentially, that um, it will eliminate specific cases that they think could be particularly bad. So like with this chat GPT model that launched recently, uh, it's a specific version of uh, a different model, GPT-3, that they've done extra what's called reinforcement learning on, where they basically try to understand, like, what are all the edge cases we don't want it to go down? So things like being biased, or there's an example where, like, people try to get it to tell you how to hotwire a car, it won't do that. And they try to train it so, so that it avoids those cases. So there's a lot of people working on this stuff. Um, it's, I think it's a huge, like, it's a huge risk area and problem. Um, yeah. It's a good question. Yeah. Um, is there anything like you would like to see happen in the future with the people who are in AI alignment? Is there anything you'd like to see them do? And is that something you want to be involved in? Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing that I've been thinking about a bit recently, because I and maybe maybe we're going to talk about this later, but um, with the um, 
with these text to image generation models, the things like Dolly or stable diffusion that can make art for you. Um, I know there's been a lot of concern from um, artists or other kind of creative types that, uh, I mean, one that like this might just re replace, you know, what they do, um, but then also, and I think more kind of um, specifically like that people can just copy their style that, uh, and, and use it to make art in their style without doing any attribution or like without them getting compensated or anything. And so um, the way these models work is like, you can, uh, you know, they're, they're trained on a lot of stuff. So like they might be trained on an artist's artwork if it's in certain places online. Um, and so kind of no matter what, as it stands now, their artwork might influence the model. But uh, beyond that, like when someone actually tries to make an image with the model, they'll write out like, you know, a dog in the park in a tutu. And then one of the ways you really get the model to to make it in the style you want is by saying like, in the style of um, Picasso or uh, in the style of something. And if you go on some of these sites where people show a lot of examples of artwork they've made, um, they'll use often like style of existing artists. So like in the style of Beeple or something. And uh, I think a big, thing you could do just in the near term to, to get better alignment and like better protection of kind of existing artists is uh, do things to kind of constrain um, in your prompt, like how much you're asking it to copy the work of someone who exists today and is, a, is an artist. Like maybe it's okay. And I think, you know, this is something society needs to align on, but maybe it's okay to try to get it to produce something in the style of a long dead artist whose work is all public domain. But like, to get it to try to produce something in the style of an artist that's alive today that's trying to make a living is feels kind of like i don't know they should at least consent to that um yeah. and so i think that's like that's just one narrow thing but like i think that's something you could do to better align these ai systems yeah that's totally fair because i i remember my art classes growing up i was terrible at art um we would be sort of so different styles of artists who have long gone like picasso and be encouraged to copy that. But never once was I encouraged to try and copy the style of an artist that had happened or, or was still alive at yeah. that point. Um, so that's kind of really interesting. Now, some of these questions, I'm going to be completely open here. Um, I used uh, the Notion AI, um, which okay, is cool. into Notion itself, to help me generate and come up with some of these questions, which led me to this thought could an ai have a podcast yeah um i mean i think the short answer is yes like there's uh a lot of the main components of a podcast people are um kind of doing already with ai so like i think you can uh you can you can get an ai to learn uh what your voice sounds like and and say things in your voice like you can get an AI to write a script for you. I mean, maybe, you know, this question maybe was written by an AI. Um, and then uh, you could also get AI to, to edit and, you know, do a lot of the post-production stuff. So I think, I think the answer is yes. I'm not sure anyone actually wants to listen to AI podcasts, but um, at least I'm not sure anyone wants to listen to a podcast that has like no human thought. I feel like people turn to podcasts because of the like, something about the kind of human uh you know 
the humanness of them like you're listening yeah. to someone's voice like there's little jokes like it's yeah, yeah. but yeah, it's uh, those little things isn't it those little kind of almost unconscious things that we do those little the 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 the, 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 the sort of canter of our voice the kind of in jokes that we have and the way yeah. it's like even i just stare off into the distance as i think of my next point it's those little little things isn't it yeah people like stuff like that i think Hey there, got a quick favour to ask of you. This podcast is currently at number 35 in the Good Pods Indie Documentary All-Time Chart. And what an amazing place to be. And I've got there because of all of you. Can we break 30? This is my question to you. Can we get higher than 30? If you've not already, click the link that's in the show notes below, whether you're listening to this on Spotify or on YouTube. Go give us a rating and help us get higher. Please, like, this will be absolutely amazing. Can we break 30? Please. (laughs) Okay, maybe I could be accused of begging on that first promo. But just to let you know, I've unified all of the social medias now. It's no longer that absolute mess where I try to say Tom underscore meets. Everything now, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram, you can find me at Tom Meets People. So we mentioned there very briefly um, AIs and, and podcasts. And of course, AI have now arrived in the podcasting world, um, thanks to yourself. So introduce Dub for us. Tell us tell us all about it. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so Dub's a product I'm building uh, for podcasters. And the goal of Dub is to help podcasters market their podcast more easily and grow their audience. And so the basic way Dub works is if you're a podcaster, uh, you can upload your podcast to Dub or link it. And then Dub has a few AI models that will turn the audio of your podcast into um, animated clips that you can post on TikTok or Instagram, um, a blog post that you could put on your newsletter or uh on medium or something like that. Um, it'll recommend titles and descriptions for you that you can put on, uh, the show notes or on YouTube. And then, um, a few other things as well. Like it'll, it'll give you a transcript of the talk. And, um, basically when I talk to most podcasters, one thing that comes up a lot is that, uh, they really love making the podcast. That's the fun part, but, um, the stuff that goes into getting your podcast actually an audience is kind of tedious and annoying, like, you know, writing all the tweets and doing all the social media stuff. And um, so Dub's basically trying to automate that for people as much as possible so that podcasters can focus on like the fun part and not have to spend many, many hours or hire someone to do all their marketing for them. So why Dub? Why, why this AI, this, this AI, why, why podcasters? Um, instead of sewing maybe a field that's a little bit more kind of in in the mainstream like we got ai art or the chat generators why why, why podcasters yeah yeah um i kind of came to it because i i kind of came to it like as a consumer as someone who listens to podcasts and and trying to solve my own problems so like I like listening to podcasts. Um, I'm always trying to find new podcasts that I that I might like, but it's it's pretty hard to find. Um, it's pretty hard to discover new podcasts. Like, 
if you think about it from how it goes as a podcast listener, like, you know, maybe you can go on Spotify and see the bazillion podcasts they have there, but, and maybe one or two looks interesting, but to really tell if you're going to like it, you have to invest quite a lot of time. Like you're going to have to listen to an hour episode. Um, and you might have to do that a few times. So you find one you like, and like most people just, you know, it's, it's kind of challenging to do that or you just don't have that much time. And so I was thinking like, okay, what would I actually prefer? Like the thing I would like that would fit my style is if for every podcast, I could just read like the episode in kind of an article form, like what you might read on a Substack or a newsletter or something. And I could be like, okay, does this sound interesting? Like, do I like what they're talking about or is it funny or something? Um, other people like they want to listen to little snippets of podcasts on TikTok or um, read the transcript or, you know, the description. And so the more I thought about it, the more I was like, well, like AI's kind of gotten good enough recently that you could take a podcast and turn it into all these other forms of media for every podcast. And it's not being done now. Um, and so, you know, it would be fun. And I think a useful thing for me and for podcasters to like build something that does this. So that's what I'm trying to do. I think I'm still working on, you know, how do I make it as, how do I make it as useful as possible for podcasters? Cause they're the, they're the customers and the audience that I'm aiming it towards. Yeah. Um, I'll come back kind of to kind of to um so because it is am I right in thinking you've you've only been having this for about two three months this has been a thing for longer like um probably about a year but for the past few months the idea is like consolidated and um and like I'm really like working on it uh you know with all my energy yeah, because I, yeah, for me, it's like I was literally just on Reddit one day and I found you and I found well, I found Dub and I was like, OK, I'll give this a go. Um, and then sort of like I think we started having a conversation in the comments and then that led to uh, that led to this episode. So you don't need to sort of persuade me. But let's talk about everyone else who sort of is a little bit distrustful at the moment. Why should they trust an AI to help them produce content for their show? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think uh, I think the most important part, as I see it, is that um, it's the the output is not about the output that dub dub gives you is not about the AI. It's, it's still centered in like what happened on the podcast and what's in the audio. Um, so all aspects of dub's output just point back to and use, use as kind of source material, like what actually was said in the transcript and, and in the podcast itself. And so, um, dub dubs an AI product, like it uses AI, but it's, it's really not about, it's not about the AI. Like it's about, it's about the podcasters and the podcast itself. And so um, the output you get, like, I would say, I mean, I would say the most important part is that uh, it's about your podcast and it's not like trying to show off what the AI can do. And um, with, with, with sort of like mid journey and Dali as well, it is very sort of, impressive what it can do and i'm still trying to find uh, what are the everyday uses um so obviously we we've established sort of podcast marketing but what what other uses do we have for ai in our 
uh, in our everyday life. And you can bring it back to dub if you like. Yeah, certainly. I mean, people are trying, um, well, even before this big wave of like GPT-3 and stuff, there was already lots of AI used in in <clears throat> all sorts of stuff, like um, in the finance industry, in um, uh, in social media, like every time you open up Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, the stuff you see is ordered by AI. Um, so it's already used kind of all over the place. I think for these more recent models like you know dolly or um gpt3 uh people are like you said like people are really trying to figure out like okay how do you turn this like big kind of it's clearly like impressive but how do you uh turn that into something that actually could be a product that's useful to people um so people are trying a bunch of stuff like people are trying to um automate some aspects of the legal profession um the law requires a lot of like writing and reading and also you know uh synthesizing long documents into some useful thing and this might be something that gpt3 is good at um people are trying to automate uh like how quickly you can make uh ad copy and ad visuals and stuff so like maybe you have some product you want to sell your small time business like you sell you know mugs or something for your tea and uh maybe you can't afford an ad agency, but like you can afford, you know, some AI software that will show your mug and like, you know, beautiful on, on the beach in Tahiti and like, you know, in, in the white house and wherever else. Um, and so people are trying stuff like that. I think it's kind of TBD, like how well, the, what things will work and what things won't. Cause it's so new. Like, I, I think you mentioned sort of some everyday cases there. Like I'm totally cool with it being used for copywriting or for, uh, for for generating kind of marketing uh, sort of material with the human eye. But uh, th there was one use there that kind of brought a little bit of concern and it's going to lead to this next question. Should we automate anything in the legal profession? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's clearly like the law is something that's so bound up with ethics and um, fairness that, I think anything you do to change the law, like, is quite consequential and requires a lot of, you know, a lot of thought. And clearly, like, having AI involved is is something that would be very consequential and, like, should be thought about. So I don't actually know. I mean, I know it's something people are trying. Um, what I will say is, like, I know lots of parts of interacting with the law today, at least, I don't know about Brit Britain, but in the US, like, uh are kind of you know unfair as it is like if you, you know the wealthier you are the more resources you can afford better lawyers like the less well off you are um you're just gonna have a much tougher time navigating the legal system so i really think it depends like for me at least like i feel like whether or not it's appropriate to have ai helping people do things in the law really depends on like well is it is it helping people that weren't going to have access to a lawyer or enough lawyer time as it is? Like, is it giving them, you know, they're starting at zero now, at least they have something, or is it just like another kind of cudgel to like beat down on people who, you know, already like had a bad time with the legal system and now are just going to have a worse time, but it'll be automated. Uh, so, I mean, I think in short, like, I feel like it really depends how it's used. Uh, but I think it's a good point. Like it, we shouldn't just like throw AI into something like the law willy nilly. Like you really have to think about it. 
And you know what? I think that's sort of a recurring theme that I'm seeing in all of the discussions about AI. It sort of depends on how it's used. And we can see it both being used for, and if you'll forgive how blunt these are, both being used for good and for evil. Um, and it's totally fair to say, oh, could we use it in such a way that we could help someone access resources that they wouldn't normally have? Um, I do want to kind of avoid a little bit of speculation, uh, but forgive me for this one question. What do you think the future of AI looks like? Uh, I mean, I think in the, at least in the next couple years, the I think it's basically just going to be like, the things we have now, but um, much, much better. So like we have ChatGPT or GPT-3 and they can write things that are, that they can almost always write something that sounds coherent, but sometimes they say things that though they sound coherent, like don't actually make sense if you think about them. I think uh, things like that, cases like that are probably gonna um, become less and less frequent. And like, we're gonna get output from these models that just like, you know, works a lot better and is more and more convincingly human. Um, they There's a ton of investment going on right now. And um, the people that work on these models like or have the next generation of them already in development. And so uh, I think what we see out of those will be like incredibly impressive. Um, as far as, uh, so I, I think that's like the next wave. Um, as far as how far they can push this current uh, type of AI model, like uh, transformers and diffusion models that are being used to to make GPT-3 and DALI and stable diffusion, that kind of remains to be seen. Um, for now, for now, basically, they're they're still just showing that like the more training data and the more compute time you you throw at these models, the better the model gets without even having to do anything like extra, um, without even having to like come up with a new type of model. And so they're going to keep doing that, I think, until that stops working, like just make bigger and bigger and bigger models, more and more and more data. Uh, beyond that, I don't know, but I think even in the next couple of years, we'll see like whatever we think is impressive now will be, you know, kind of the standards will be totally set again. So I have something of a tradition uh, here at Tom Meets in Interesting People. Um, these questions are going to close us out and they come from the Prost questionnaire, which were then adapted by Bernard Pivot. Uh, and then later by James Lipton. And now I present my AI adaptation to yourself. 10 questions, you ready? Yep, let's do it. What is your favorite word? Sorted. Sorted or sorted? Oh, I don't know. I was reaching around for, I'm horrible at favorites, to be honest, but I was kind of reaching around. There's some. There's a set of words I like to use if I'm like, really feel like I'm like, you know, trying to make a point or something. And and I, I just like the way that one sounds. It feels like it has like meat behind it. Obviously. The use cases uh, of that, I'm just cringing hearing a sentence start with obviously. <laughs> We're in agreement there. What engages you? I think conversation. I love talking to people. Um, it's, I feel most like present when I talk to someone. Uh, hear, like hearing someone just speak for an hour straight, like in a lecture or something, I, I almost always, I, I can never actually follow that. I almost always lose, in, like not lose interest, but lose attention in like five minutes.
had to also uh, avoid making a joke there about podcasters who also talk for an hour straight. Uh, hello, how are you? <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? What sound of noise do you hate? Um, I'm like super uh, kind of get cringed out by the sound of people chewing loudly. Uh, it Yeah, kind of freaks me out. Everyone's favorite question. What is your favorite curse word? I guess bastard. Feels kind of old timey. Feels game, you know, they use it in Game of Thrones. It's his favorite word too, I think. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? I think I would like being a historian who just sits around in a room with kind of like big bookcases and maybe I could pretend like I smoke a pipe and wear a tweed jacket. I think I would like that. What profession would you not like to do? I think I would be a terrible electrician. I think like I just wouldn't have the patience for actually... uh, I don't think I would like triple check things enough and I would end up burning someone's house down. I would not like that. If you could say only one statement to any one person, what would that statement be? And who would that person be? I guess uh, I'm listening to this podcast right now, um, Behind the Bastards, great word. Uh, And they're talking about Christopher Columbus And just kind of all the, you know, all that he wrought personally on the new world and like, you know, just terrible things he did and, uh, and, you know, his legacy. And I guess I would go back to him and I would say, um, when he's leaving Spain, I'd be like, uh, you're going the wrong way. Uh, Turn around and go the other way. I'd try to prevent him (laughs) making that that voyage. (laughs) mentioned behind the bastards as well um i checked out a great podcast um sam where could uh people find you online and where could we find dub yeah so you can find me on twitter at samuel mg plank plank is p-l-a-n-k and then you can find dub at www.dubdubb.media and uh please go check it out if you're a podcaster, uh, it's, it's free to try. And I'd love to hear what you think.